welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 85. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh J., the one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you're a wise man. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. My wife may disagree with you, sir. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited about tonight, and it's not because I got to revisit the Dracula movies, because tonight we're doing a Dracula versus episode. And um, guys, I just, I'm terrible at homework. I always have been. Now, of course, just to be clear, I've seen both of these Dracula films, okay? Especially the 1931 version. I've probably seen uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula about at least three times, I would say. Maybe more. But it's been years since I've seen either of them. So, I just want to say, it's not like I've never seen them, but it's just been too long for me to feel comfortable about reviewing them. But you two... Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock did not fail us once again. They did the assignment. But um, later on, at the very end of the show, Wolfman Josh and I will be re- feature reviewing a new film called The Invitation, which I did see, and I'm very excited to talk about that. So without further delay, let's move into our feature review of Dracula from 1931. I am... Dracula. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Okay, well, this is the movie that uh, that kind of started it all. This was Universal's first, well, in, in the sound era anyway, first foray into um, into horror. Uh, you know, sort of kicking off the the genre that uh, they would sort of excel in for the next. Well, better part of uh, of two decades, actually. And uh, it was from 1931, and it was directed by uh, Todd Browning, and also uh, stars, uh, of course, um, uh, Bela Lugosi as uh, as the title character, uh, Count Dracula. Um, and really what it is, it's, it's sort of, it, it was based on Bram Stoker's novel, but there was also a London stage play at the t- at the time, um, you know, of the same name. And it's it's you know, you have Count Dracula. Um, uh, he's leaving his uh, castle in Transylvania to take up residence in England, and uh, once there, uh, he kind of sets his sights on his new neighbor uh, Mina Seward and her friend Lucy. Um, you know, and obviously we, we learned at the beginning, Dracula is a, uh, is a vampire. There's a good scene at the, at the beginning there with Renfield who had gone with him, gone over, uh, to Transylvania to sort of talk with him about, um, uh, the real estate transaction. And it's then that we meet Dracula and his three brides. Uh, and we realize exactly what, uh, what England has in store for it. Um, well, one of the girls, Lucy eventually does sort of, uh, she does pass on. Um, and it's at that point, uh, you know, the body's brought to Abraham Van Helsing, played by Edward Van Sloan. He examines her and he, he sort of specializes in the supernatural. And he, um, he's the one who announces that it looks like there is a vampire in England. And he tells Mina, well, you better, you know, stay away from this, uh, from this new neighbor of yours. But unfortunately, Mina is already under his spell 
And now it's up to Van Helsing to try to save her. So that's the synopsis for Dracula. And, I mean, the movie, we said it before, it's not my favorite of the Universal horror movies. It's a classic, and I love it. And the main reason I love it is because of, of Bela Lugosi. He sort of set the, the standard for what uh, Dracula would be on the screen for years to come, the sort of dashing, um, hypnotic, uh, you know, handsome uh, count. Uh, you know, we had had in 1922, we had had Nosferatu. Uh, so this was this was a de- definitely a different sort of vampire, more in line with, I'm, I'm guessing, Bram Stoker's, uh, you know, vision of the character. Well, I don't know if that's true. What is that? That this is more in line with Bram Stoker's version of the character? I think like we talked about with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I think this is more based on the stage play than it is the actual novel and departs a lot from the novel. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that Coppola called his film Bram Stoker's Dracula, number one is probably for copyright reasons, but additionally, his storyline, although itself has a huge portion of it that's created just for the movie, is actually much closer to the book than uh, this version is. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I know, I know that it was, you know, it was as much on the stage play. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as anything, you know, and um, and I know that uh, Lugosi had played it on the stage. Yeah, um, the, he was not the first choice for the role. The first choice for the role was uh, Lon Chaney Sr., but he had passed away. Um, and you know, Tim and Todd Browning had this working relationship with. He had worked with Lon Chaney Sr. on on several movies uh, during the silent era. Um, so, and, and of course, we've talked about it before how Todd Browning sort of lost his enthusiasm for the project at that point and it's not what i would say it's not uh, it's not a very dynamic dynamically directed film there aren't many um you know the camera is is very static uh in a lot of shots um and a lot of it is because you know like i said bram uh or todd browning just sort of lost um you know lost uh lost his interest in the project once uh, lon cheney had passed on Right. But fortunately, it, it does have Bela Lugosi, and I think he's the reason to uh, the see the movie. I think he's the reason why it's still a classic, too. I mean, I would suggest he's the reason we know the name Dracula now. Although, yeah. to me, the novel is the best version of the story. I mean, it is so good, and I daydream when I read it about like a faithful adaptation of it, because I don't think we've still had that to this day. But... Um, when you think of Dracula, and really when you think of vampires, up until maybe the era of Blade, and one of the things, you know, we've had more of these modern takes on vampires, um, Bela Lugosi's take on this character has really colored everything we think of. You know, when Jay mm-hmm. talks about dapper vampires, mm. right. <laughs> you're yeah. talking about the Bela Lugosi model, really, and a lot of what <clears throat> this character has uh, comes from the stage play and had been done in London many, many times and then in, on Broadway. So it was it's not as though he created it from scratch, but his thick accent, right. um, his look really have influenced how we think of vampires uh, today. Yes. You know, the book um, describes an older man with a white drooping mustache which is much closer to some of the some of the visions we see of Gary Oldman in Bram Stoker's version uh-huh. of Dracula, an older uh-huh. military man, you know, beastly and in tattered clothing. And when they brought it to the stage, they really classed up um, this Count character and you know made him more of a regal 
character and played on this idea that you might not know he's a vampire until it's too late, which is an element that I've, you know, talked about a lot before on the show that I really like about a vampire is their ability to blend in and pass and kind of be amongst us undetected. That's a really fun element that really grows out of the stage play more than anything else um, Uh previous to that. Definitely. And there's other performances in here as well. You know, we, we've mentioned about, uh, you know, Renfield. Yes. Uh, oh, boy, who's that? I talked about Dwight him so many Fry. times. Before. Dwight Fry. That's it. Dwight Fry, yes. He's tremendous. He has that really great scene uh, in the ship that's just eerie as hell. If you watch, um, you know, Coppola's version of the film, you, you'll think, where does this uh, Keanu Reeves character come from? Jonathan Harker and in, uh, in the 1931 film, he isn't introduced until much later and isn't really a main character. And what right. the 1931 film does is um, kind of puts Renfield in Harker's place because they thought that was more interesting dramatically to have this crazy guy um, be the one who is first to Dracula's castle. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting change the film makes, which I actually think is pretty effective. It, you know, as a fan of the novel first, it it's a little frustrating, but then when you actually look at the way that impacts the drama of the film, it's pretty creepy. And mm-hmm. Dwight Fry's performance is really strong, I would say. It's it's over the top, but it's strong. So over the over the top, but it, yeah, it's still uh still effective. You're right. I mean it is it is a little bit uh, flamboyant at times. Um, but it does definitely work. And he's got uh, a and- match Bella Lugosi, so he's got oh, right. a you know, Exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, you have um, uh, Edward Van Sloan. I thought he did a, a he, he did a decent enough job as um, as Van Helsing. Yeah. Um, I'm, but it really, I mean, obviously, it's really it's it's Bela Lugosi's movie. Yeah. Um, from start to finish, it's just the lines, you know, just the way he delivers them, you know, the whole the children of the night uh, line, and I never drink wine, and you know, the, the thing, <laughs> just his delivery in it is is I think what really does it, and obviously that that hypnotic stare of his, which would become his, his trademark. I mean, I know there are some films in the 40s that started with his eyes, like just sort of superimposed, flying toward the camera. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's that all started back with this movie. I love, um, despite him being the dapper vampire, how he in his hand actions really and and his face is able to create quite a monstrous look from time to time um especially yes. just in his hands uh, they're real it's really cool to watch his physical performance in the film it's very controlled and specific uh-huh and really good and, and there's that moment too where um he's he's he, he is he's very controlled until um Van Helsing opens up that box with the mirror. Yeah. Van Helsing's then, concocted a little trap to prove that Dracula is a vampire. Right. And, uh, you know, Van Helsing's been noticing throughout the house that, you know, that uh, his, you know, image is not reflected in the mirrors. And so he basically tricks Dracula. And he does this a couple of times, which I really like in the Van Helsing character. He mm-hmm. kind of, he kind of um, uses Dracula's own. Um, big headedness against him, basically, you know, his own, right. his own belief in his power against him. And, <laughs> and it's kind of fun to see in those couple of times, once with Amir and once with the crucifix, right. Um, how Dracula almost can't handle, 
you know, being, uh, being fought against in any way. Cause he's so unused to that. <laughs> right. Happened. Exactly. He's not used to having an adversary, uh, yeah. equal to him now. Definitely. Um, but like I said, now I have you, I don't know, Josh, have you seen the, the Spanish version of Dracula? Yes, I have. And, um, I, you know, I like a lot of people and I think you've talked about it on the show, um, I think actually you you talking about it was is what led me to watching it for the first time. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, but basically the you know how much better a lot of the effects are, especially in some of the camera work. Um, the acting's not as good. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean that it's 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 almost as if you wish that you had the cast from this movie with the director from that one. Oh, that and would be incredible. It, yeah. It, it, what's interesting is the director didn't even speak Spanish. Oh, wow. Yeah. They, they had to do interpreters for everything. And, and then, you know, the whole story is that the Dracula was filmed during the day. The Spanish version was filmed at night. They did that with, they did that for a little bit with several films um, for foreign markets. So the story that I heard on the commentary was that basically um, the Spanish crew would come in, look at the dailies from what the English crew had shot and say, nah, we can do better than that. And so right. they would, they would try to class it up a little bit. Um, I did hear there's a commentary. There are two commentaries on the Blu-ray. Um, and one of them is a film historian. The other is the screenwriter of Dracula dead and loving it, which I was surprised Wow. That, that made <laughs> the cut. Yeah. That's, he's uh... actually, he's actually a really interesting guy and he fights um, the battle for Todd Browning's film and says that Browning's is actually the superior filmmaking. Mm. And although I disagree with him most of the time, he may, he makes some very compelling arguments about uh, the way Browning's film is edited and how it's just a more sophisticated film, even though, uh, the Spanish version is a lot more flashy and uh-huh. progressive in terms of in, in, innovative, I guess, when it comes right. to the effects and camera work. Um, he said that Todd Browning's is actually stronger with classic filmmaking elements. And when he points them out, you can see in the kind of, you know, if you compare the scenes, oh, yeah, I can see oh, interesting. better. But they're, interesting. they're worth looking at. I think if you're a fan of the story, you should definitely watch both of them. Okay, I, I'm guessing I have uh, that that commentary. I haven't yeah, I haven't I'm checked that sure. one out yet. I, the, this is another one. I love the the like the the main commentaries that they do with all of these universals. Yeah, they're they're always strong, um, mm-hmm. and all the all the, the versions. But um, yeah, I, I you know we talked about this a lot with the Frankenstein set, you know, with the legacy collection. But I can't recommend buying these highly enough. They're if you love classic horror, they're really um strong. Definitely. In terms of the, the transfers are great and then the con- the bonus content is is much worthwhile. And one of the things that, that really does strike you with the Blu-ray is and it was in Dracula, as you're watching the movie, you know, there's there's a hiss on most of the DVD versions, there's, there's this sort of like, like a, like a low tone sort of hiss on the soundtrack mm-hmm. that goes throughout the film. Mm-hmm. They were able to clean that up on the Blu-ray and you can actually, there are actually scenes of silence, which is how it was shot. You know, it's supposed to be just silence where you can hear like the feet hitting the steps, which you could never hear in the other one because of that hiss. And um, also really Browning trouble. And Browning comes from silent film and, yeah. and supposedly was having a hard time adapting to talkies. 
And mm-hmm. so he actually, this is one of the arguments that, that, uh, that screenwriter made is that due to his talent for silent film actually was really good at constructing these quiet moments without mm-hmm. being flashy and understood geography and, and blocking and a lot of these th- and editing. And I would agree with that. And then you, it's really even more clear as much as that's a little thing, the hiss, it, it makes a surprising difference yes. uh, for it to be completely silent. And, um, it, it, it definitely does. Yes, yeah. definitely. And and it's not that I think Todd Browning was a good director. I mean, you see some of his other movies, like yes. Devil Doll and of course Freaks. <laughs> um, and he did a great job with with those. I, I think this was just more mm-hmm. of the the situation of, you know, he. I think he had built it up with Lon Chaney Sr. And I think there was just more of that. And I think Chaney Sr. had died very recent. Very. It was recently. during the, yeah, it was during the development of the film. Yeah. They had done another vampire movie together, um, London After Midnight. Right. In 1928. And a, a vampire movie of sorts, I'll say in uh-huh. quotes. But a really creepy, creepy version of the vampire that, um, that Chaney uh, creates for for himself, you know, as as a makeup artist, right? And um, you can really imagine him doing something extremely outlandish for Dracula that may match the book better, but um, Lugosi goes a completely different direction, and and you know his physicality is really what defines the character permanently in in my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, Browning went on to make another movie, Mark of the Vampire, which borrows a lot from Dracula. There are some mm-hmm. very, very similar scenes. And then also is, is very much akin to London after midnight. And it's it's a, I think it's a remake of London after midnight. And that's like the only, yeah. <clears throat> cause London after midnight, other than stills, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. It's, the movie's just, it, it's gone. It's lost. And hopefully it'll be found at some point. Uh, who knows where, but right now it doesn't exist as a film. There's only the stills. Um, and the Mark of the Vampire is a remake of that. And it has uh, the same, yeah, kind of twist ending. Yes, yes. and I didn't like that twist ending. I gotta be honest with you. Yeah. It just for me, it just didn't make a lot of sense. I thought I thought it was ninety percent an excellent movie, um, and just fell yeah. apart in that last ten percent there. And when you see um, Mark of the Vampire and Dracula together, you can imagine, um what he must have been going for with London after midnight and right. what, what type of Dracula movie he had hoped to make um, if he could have done it with Cheney. So I don't know. I just find that super fascinating to look at. Yeah, this. absolutely. Here's the thing. As I said earlier, I've seen both of these movies tonight a few times, but the last time I saw this Dracula 1931, it was Halloween night of 2011. And I watched it with my son. It was the first time I showed it to him and guys, I'm not trying to take anything away from this film because, like, if you were if you were to make a list of like the most classic horror films, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this one would probably be maybe in the top five or so. I mean, people would argue that, but this thing has some seriously slow pacing. Even I mean, it, yes, it's older and it's in black and white, but I was astounded at how how slow it felt to me. Did you do you get that, or do you not feel like it's slow? I don't. I don't get it. Only because I'm. I think um, Lugosi is so mesmerizing in in the role. Um, but I can. I, I can't really. I don't know. I can't argue with you much on it um, because I think that there are scenes like that. 
even more so in this than some of the others, like Frankenstein and whatnot. Um, I would, uh, I would, so I would sort of agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't bother me. I mean, uh, for me, it doesn't detract just because, like I said, Lugosi's there, and, and he's just so interesting to watch. Yeah, it never really impacted me either. Um, I showed this to my son on this viewing. And um, Mm -hmm. I I will admit, like, I read the novel very early on in life. And so Mm -hmm. it's really hard for me to separate the book experience from any of the film adaptations. It's almost impossible. And so, but one of the things I'm always doing is comparing and contrasting, comparing and contrasting. And so it's always interesting, like, oh, they switched Mina and Lucy. Why did they do that? And then, oh, it's interesting. Like, you know, I'm always just kind of picking it apart. And so I've never been bored in an adaptation of Dracula, um, certainly not this one. I mean, I think, you know, it's not quite as dramatic at times as the Frankenstein sets, but there are some really cool sets in this movie uh-huh. that just have this gothic power to them. I feel like the yes. film, for me, is hypnotizing in the way that Dracula himself, you know, it kind of hypnotizes people in the film. I, I <laughs> right. kind of get sucked in nice. to this movie in that same way. Wow, I like yeah. what you did there. You were you were bringing it with hypnotizing and sucked in. <laughs> That's impressive. Now, maybe I need a Michael Bay Dracula then. Like, maybe. <laughs> I'm just uh, kidding. No, I don't think anybody needs a Michael Bay Dracula. But... I can't even imagine what that would look like. No. Okay, no, well, well, I'll shut up and I, go back to I, my I, corner. I did, I did not see the most recent. What was that recent Dracula that had come out? Um, the one that was more of an action film. Oh, uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It? Uh, Dracula no. Untold. <laughs> yeah, Dracula what, Dead and Loving right? Was it not Untold? You saw Dracula it, Josh. Untold, yeah, I did see it. I mean, that one is just an action movie. It doesn't have any of the gothic horror. And so for me, um, it has a great monster in the mountain scene, mm-hmm. uh, although it is not that far off what you'd get in an underworld or something like that. But um, this is, yeah, Dracula untold is not a bad movie. It's just more of has a feel of a sword and sandals epic. Okay. Especially like a modern take on a sword and sandals epic than uh, anything to do with this classic monster. Gotcha. And did, was it intended to be the first, were they kicking off? You know how Universal said they're going to bring back all of their monsters to eventually do sort of a, a mashup? Back and forth on it. I think they initially they said it wasn't, and then they said, oh, yeah, actually, it is going to be the first one. And it, it's a prequel to the story we're familiar with. Uh-huh. The thing that's okay. disappointing to me about it is that the final scene is in modern day. And so you're like, oh, I don't like right. that. You know, like he jumps from before the drag, you know, it's from like medieval Vladi and Paler times to like New York 2015 or whatever. Oh, I, don't, well. I don't remember what it, where or when it was, but it was oh, a wow. modern uh, scene at the end of the movie, which I did not <laughs> love. Um, so we've already yeah. had mashups of these of these creatures, not only in Abbott Costello meets uh, Frankenstein, <laughs> but also in uh, the Monster Squad. There you go, yeah. And I don't know if they can do it better than either of those two, to be honest with you. I would agree with that. Although, you know, I would like to see. I mean, if if done right, if 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 to me that means keeping the classic gothic elements intact, uh-huh. um, bring as much adventure as you want to it, but give me a classic classic gothic story. I mean, I we're going to talk about it in a minute. I think Coppola does a fantastic job that I think is for me underrated. Although I will say 
it still isn't like my fate, my fantasy version. It's not like the one I want still, no. but, it, but it's so artistic in its approach. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's about as good a Dracula movie as well. We've ever seen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. So you guys ready to bring in your ratings on this one? Sure. I don't yeah, want to, I, I don't want to rush you. I just well, feel bad. I didn't have as much time to get in deep into the research for this one as um, I did for Frankenstein, but <clears throat> I have seen this a million times. It's, it's definitely worth seeing if you haven't all of the things we said about Frankenstein on the last uh, versus episode. It holds true of this. It, for me, it's a classic monster. Um, it's a classic film. If you like film history and like this era of filmmaking, or you're not sure if you are, if you do, I think this is a movie to check out and um, experience. And the Blu-ray collections are incredible. Uh, the DVD collection is also really, really good. You can get it for cheap, like ten bucks at, at you know an Fye kind of thing, or, or find it on Amazon. And um, it's one that I recommend everybody watch. So I, I give this one a ten. I can't really give it less because it's a classic film and um, it's so iconic. Like we mentioned earlier, the Bela Lugosi is the model for what we think of as vampires in the world. And so, um, yeah, there's no getting around that. So yeah, that is a 10 and a buy it for me. Okay. And what about you, Dr. Shock? What do you say? I have to go with a 10 too. I mean, it's the one that, uh, the one that started it all. Um, it has uh, you know, Bela Lugosi in the role that that he made famous and that that stayed with him throughout his life. And yeah, it, it's 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 a definite ten, ten out of ten, no doubt. Okay, and you tell him to buy it, right? Oh, absolutely. Buy <clears throat> it. Okay, I figured that. I can still come up with a rating. I feel comfortable enough with this, and I can still ruffle feathers. This is an 8 out of 10 to me. I do think it's a classic, of course. I think it's a must-see, of course, if for nothing else, for historic purposes, if you're a horror fan. And yeah, I mean, I would call it a buy. I mean, who's not going to own Dracula 1931, right? But but I mean, it, I just wish the pacing were a little a little more brisk for me guys i get i don't know i just must maybe i have like some kind of attention deficit or something because i get i get really bored and and his performance is a classic performance who's gonna nitpick that and argue about that but it also seems really old-fashioned to me as well it's a well it's 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 based on the stage play it's very theatrical yeah it's very theatrical it's very hammy that just doesn't bother me because I'm enjoying. I, I, I we've we've had this as a as a fight before. Hopefully, we'll get that tonight. But for <laughs> me, um, I, I enjoy the just seeing cinema of that era and what this was. That to me is entertaining to see. Like, oh, like I feel like I've been transported into another time and place when I watch these films, and they're so. Um, big in scale and it's so interesting to think about how controversial these were how the studio was scared to make them and tried to not make them for a while and then how huge hits they were and how i don't know just to me it's place in cinema history um really impacts my viewing in a positive way and and that kind of keeps me entertained even if this film might be slow at times i i never feel that way when i'm watching it uh-huh. Well, I I can definitely. But I absolutely see what you're saying. I understand what I understand. Yeah. What 
Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, and I will say this too. I mean, maybe this will appease everyone out there who's mad at me right now. But like, I remember like when I did last see it, I believe it was streaming on Netflix at the time. I don't know if it still is, but um, it's the kind of film that you could just like put on in the background. Yes, just, definitely. Just for like, you know, to have art in your house, you know, like mm-hmm. the same way people put put in, uh, you know, classical music or something like that. So I could definitely appreciate it on that level. I mean, that's, uh, of all the times I've seen Citizen Kane, for example, usually it's under, you know, that circumstance where I have it on in the background just because I, I like looking up at it every once in uh-huh. a while. So that that's really, you know, a good feeling for and this if you, film. And if you really want to um, uh, have something good playing in the background, um it would also, I would say, put it on with with one of with the commentary track, with the main commentary track. As oh, well. nice. There's another thing I would recommend as well on the new Blu-ray. Philip Glass does his own take on the score. Oh, and yes, that's, that's right. a really oh. fun way to watch the film if you're familiar with the original, especially to go back and listen to you know this modern composer do a really interesting take on it. Uh-huh. And that's the kind of minutia you get on horror movie podcasts. So we're glad everybody has <laughs> tuned in. And so now, since this is a versus episode, we're going to move into our feature review of Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula. And the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracul. There's a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I have never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. One of the masters of 70s cinema um, steps in to take a stab at Bram Stoker's Dracula um, here with Francis Ford Coppola and then his 1992 version of the film. He adheres much more closely to the novel, but also departs greatly from it at times, probably departs further than Todd Browning ever does and the stage play ever did, yet still... Um, is able to keep the basic structure and characters intact in a much more faithful way and portrays Dracula, although not the way I imagined Dracula when I read the novel in a way that is um, in some ways more keeping to the original tale. I, I think it is especially effective. You know, we talked about scenes like in the 1931 version with the mirror like that's a great scene, but the way that plays out in this film is the way that it plays out in the book and is much more provocative uh-huh. um, than you know than the thirty one version of the film. You know, there's the blood and and, and the shaving and all of this stuff is so uh, elemental to the book, and I think for me adds a lot to the mythos of this character. Um, anyway, the, the, what's invented is this, um, love story between the count and a character who happens to look exactly like, uh, 
Jonathan Harker's love Mina. Um, right. That Elizabeta, I think was her name. Yeah, the, and yeah. Mina. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that is that is added for this film, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but feels um, feels right with the movie. If that makes I, sense, it, it does. I, I mean, I didn't I didn't have any problem at all with with that addition um, because of you know the way it was handled. Uh, I thought it was handled very well, and I thought it did add another element uh, to to the story. Uh, yeah, I didn't have a problem with that at all. So in this movie, we have Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker rather than as Renfield going to pay, or what is it in um, in Nosferatu? Boy, yeah, they had to change it, and I can't remember what they changed. It's funny because some versions they do call him Harker. It depends on what which one you get. Yeah, Hutter. I think it was Hutter. Hutter. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they go back with to the Harker character, which it was originally in the novel, and um, he he's going to visit Dracula because Dracula wants to buy land in London, and um, Harker's character is someone who who sells that land, and so he's going to visit the count and hopefully make this big sale, and he sells them this home, but. Um, you know, Dracula's plan is to take over London basically in this movie. And you get a better sense of that. I think in this version of the film than you do in the 1931 movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like that about it for starters. Um, you have this count played by Gary Oldman in the really bizarre, uh, kind of get up and hairstyle compared to what we were used to from the Dracula character at that time. It's itself has been, I become iconic um, since then, and a really interesting performance from Gary Oldman um, that I, you know I think has been very divisive. I, I think uh, this movie in general is very divisive, and I, I mentioned earlier I think it's underrated. And for me, I just think it's so artfully done. Um, there's so much imagination, and you know the way the things about it that are modern don't ruin it the way, you know, the modern elements of Dracula untold <laughs> ruin it. You know right, what I mean? Like right, it's, right. it's bringing the filmmaking of its time to a classic tale. Now, even then they were actually doing a lot of special effects that were done the old way, um, ways that, you know, they weren't being done at the time in 92, you know, from, they were taking Roman Coppola, uh, Francis's son was put in charge of the effects and he was either creating effects that had never been done before, uh-huh. or he was kind of hearkening back to classic uh, filmmaking techniques. So I think it adds an element of tangibility and richness to this movie as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And I love that um, uh, specifically, you know, um, the, the scene uh, at Dracula's castle. Mm-hmm. You know, when Harker first arrives, there's what they had done with the shadows. It yeah. just sort of takes you off guard uh, the first time. Uh, and then it just continues. It's almost as if, you know, Dracula's uh, shadow is, is an entity in and of itself. Yeah, it's kind of like the Peter Pan shadow. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. <laughs> but a little more death, a little more death to find. Um, right. A little, a little, a little darker. Yes, yeah. <laughs> more deadly. Um, also, I think Anthony Hopkins, as much as I liked Van Helsing in the thirty-one version, I think is a huge step up for the Van Helsing character uh-huh. here. Um, this might be 
my favorite portrayal of Van Helsing in a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this is he's definitely over the top as well. Yeah, but it, it works. And yeah. I think I think that um, yeah, you know, he <laughs> Gary Oldman didn't really have too many other people sort of matching his screen presence, but I think Hopkins comes damn close, if not if not matching him mm. for screen presence in this movie. It's not a bad over the top, which is no. rare, right? No, it's but, it's not. Yeah. It's it's not. And it, well, makes, no, no, and, it, and it makes the character a little humorous at times too, but it, even that seems to seems seems to work because it's not like he's just not like the character itself is trying to it's like, "Oh no, no, I don't want to do an autopsy. I just want to cut the head off and cut out the heart." One on a writer here plays Amina, and as you mentioned, Elizabeth, and um, she's—I think she's excellent in this role. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, there there have been some detractors for her, but uh, I thought she was fine, and I thought um, her and Gary Oldman had a very good chemistry together. Yes. Um, now that said, I really did like the girl who played her friend. Uh, Lucy, yeah, yes. uh, Sadie Frost. Sadie Frost. I thought she had a, a real. Um, I thought she did a, an excellent job as well. I agree. And some scenes maybe overshadowed her a little bit, but no, I think Winona Ryder was absolutely, you know, absolutely fine in this role. I thought she did a. I thought she did a very good job. I, I really enjoy her, and, and even Keanu Reeves, who is by far the weakest link amongst the cast. Yeah, um, I still find him watchable and and, and fun. Yeah. And he was like, he, he was a little he was a, a little too a little too boring. Uh, a little yeah, too I mean he's coach, he is you know? Keanu Reeves, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean you know you 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 everybody's always you know drawing comparisons. Everyone always goes back to Bill and Ted, um, yeah. you know, with him, and that's certainly not on that level or, or anything, but, um, for me, I, I actually kind of wanted to see her end up with Dracula <laughs> as, <laughs> as opposed to this guy, because I thought, you know, it, I, there was never really a time when, when I thought that, that, that he was the better choice for her. That's interesting. Very interesting. Um, I, I think Ken Reeves, it's weird because for him, this might be in his top three or four performances, mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. it's like the worst performance. And so it's kind of tricky. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine a better actor um, handling this character better. I wish what I'd like to see is like Patrick or not Patrick Stewart, um, Jason Patrick. Or oh, something. yeah. Well, like, I think that would be really great. That um, would have been interesting. Tom Waits is a non-actor who's in this film, and I thought he was amazing as Renfield. He was. I almost wish there were that there were more scenes with him. Yes. I don't. There wasn't quite enough, and he didn't really get to do a whole lot in the movie. I, I wish they had given him a few of the Renfield scenes that we got in the thirty-one version because he was great, and I would have loved to have seen him him appear a little more often. And again, part of that was because they had given Renfield all of the Harker scenes, in, right? Uh, Exactly. 30. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, they do they do hint at it at the beginning that he was the first one to go there. Yes. They show that at the beginning, and it would have been nice, hey, you know what, show us a flashback or something of him there, because, yeah, he was he was really a fascinating character. You know, something I had, I, I do love this movie, but I hadn't actually sat down and watched it in a long time, and somehow I forgot that Carrie Yules was in this, oh, which right. I was really excited about, because... I think of him more as the character in Shadow of the Vampire. <laughs> right, exactly. It's it fun to the see that he's in right. both of these movies. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and, and he was and he was good too. I mean, you know, as, as the fiance, 
Yeah. Um, you know, not not really believing it at first, but then obviously getting into it to the point that he's going to join right along and let's take this guy down. You know, I, I um I like that. And then the was it the character was it was it uh Morris? Not Quincy Morris, was it? Is that was that his name? Uh yeah. Texan. Yeah, that's right. Billy Campbell's Texan. character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you, that was a that was another really interesting character that you don't see in other Dracula movies, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and he's I'm, he's a fun actor too. Yeah, yeah. Rocketeer. So I, I liked I liked that um, that mix of the, that trio that sort of Van Helsing had as as his um, you know as his uh, as his assistants. Yeah, um, and and, and, and some cool vampire. vampire slain in this movie. I mean, not as much as as I would like because that's one of my favorite elements of vampire movies. But a step up from the thirty one version, mm-hmm. uh, and like you, the scene you mentioned before, but like decapitation all that stuff like that's um that's an exciting scene when they're going down into the tomb that's probably that is that's the one that always stands out for me as yeah. one of my if not my favorite scene in the movie i did really like the opening the 1462 opening but the, that scene down in the crypt yeah for me uh is is probably the 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 best my favorite i'm not gonna say the best but it's my favorite scene in, in the movie I think they do a great job with the haunting of Mina and Lucy by Dracula as well, mm-hmm. which um, almost recalls Salem's Lot to me. Uh, they right. think they handle the elements from the book better than um, any other previous version in this movie. Right. Right. Now, a couple things. They do leave a few things behind. Like, I, they, it's never really explained how Harker got away from the from the brides. Right. He just sort of does. Um, and if I had one major issue with the movie, it was the way it handled the passage of time. People seem to travel very long distances in very short periods of time, uh, and yep. especially for it to be the end of the 19th century. Um, you have the scene where, um, where um, uh, Mina is uh, going to uh, meet up with Jonathan. He's been found. He's at a convent somewhere in Romania. And she leaves a note, um, you know, because she had been, developed this relationship with the Count um, and had said, I won't be seeing you again. And you see the Count sort of reacting, and it's interspersed with scenes of her marrying Jonathan in Romania. Now, yeah. I don't know. I'm assuming that that trip, without knowing for sure, I don't know how the rail systems were or how the she was on a boat <laughs> when she was, you know, starting it. I would assume that would have taken weeks. Oh, yeah. To, to get there. Um, and it seems as if the count is reacting like a day or two later. So that was the, probably the main issue I had with this. And just they seem to go like, oh, well, it's only 200 miles. We can be there. You know, and it just not that <laughs> not that I want to see the full passage of time. I don't expect that. <laughs> but I just think that they just it, it was they didn't really address that. I, it, not that it just sort of bothered me a little bit the way that they just sort of hopping all over the place all the time. I, I can I can see that. I honor your feelings about this, but I do think that the way they do it is kind of fun. Like it's really weird and almost um, like, like there's a lot of miniature looking stuff, the way the train shots are done. And, and, you know, you talked about Dracula's eyes, like they use that here as well. Mm -hmm. And just, I don't know, just some fun ideas. You know, the book everyone knows is written in this really fascinating way where, it's all through letters and journal entries. So and I liked how they kept with that, with the narration. Yes. I liked yeah. how they did that with this movie. I thought that was excellent. 
So you may, it makes sense that there are these jumps in time in the book because you're only catching up with these characters every time someone sends a letter or uh-huh. someone writes in their journal. You're not getting every day. You're not getting um, the in between moments. And so, right. it, so for me, that makes sense. And I also just think it's it kind of done in this quirky way that some people could watch and be like, "This is so cheesy." But if you have an appreciation for classic cinema. It's almost like, ooh, I get to see it. Like, let's put on a show. Like, it feels like watching a puppet right. puppet show or something, you know? No, and, and I see, and you know what? I mean, other than that, this movie is, it's it's something like, as I was watching it, you, you really do get pulled in. There's this excitement to it, you know, with, with the style and the way that it is. And it, it does pull you in. I mean, it's a two-plus-hour yeah. movie. I mean, just over two hours. I think it's like two hours and seven minutes. But it do, it flies by in what seems like, Maybe a, a fraction. It's a fraction of that time. I mean, this movie is it's very dynamic, and it it's it has a great energy to it. And you know, it's it's really fun to watch. No, I agree. I mean, I I absolutely love this movie. I was a lot cooler on it when I first saw it. Um, you know, I had, I had been a big fan of the novel. I watched it and I thought, why did they change so much? Why do they call it Bram Stoker's Dracula when they changed so much of it? But then, you know, but in revisiting the 31 version in this back to back, you realize, oh, well, this actually is the much more faithful of the uh-huh. two, despite all of these um, creations. But for me, the real reason to watch this movie, it, it there is that excitement you're talking about. But for me, it's just so artfully done. It's an yeah. art house vampire movie, as we mentioned, you know, in passing um, the art house vampires episode. It really is. And it has this handmade quality to it because of the way the effects are done. I just appreciate it. I can feel the artifice, but I like it. If that uh-huh. makes sense. It's almost like watching, um, you know, when Wes Anderson did his version of the fantastic Mr. Fox in claymation, uh, like right. you can feel the movie trickery, but it's so, um, I don't know, unique. And in our current time that it's, there's something charming about it. Right. That, that movie is truly amazing because it's like, it's, it's, animation but still it's still an absolutely 100% Wes Anderson film which i think yep. makes it just absolutely amazing but anyway um you know back to this um no i i don't i don't i don't disagree with you i don't disagree with you at all uh, you know as far as uh but even with it being an art house film it, it is it does have that sensibility to it but yet a lot of people when you think art house you're thinking it, that has that has sort of a it has negative connotations as well. Not for me. I mean, I love art house cinema, but some people think, oh, you know, like they might be thinking like, you know, Ingmar Bergman or or you know, very slow paced or whatever. And that's not this film. This film moves at a at an excellent pace. I mean, Jay was yeah. talking about you know the first Dracula. That's not the problem in this movie at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, this yeah. thing is moving all the time. Um, and there's always, and I found myself anticipating scenes, you know, I said, Oh, I wonder how they're going to handle Harker going to the castle. And I can't wait to see how they do it. Or, or I wonder how they're, you know, how they're going to handle the ship. Now that was a little disappointing. I would have liked to have seen them do something a little more when he was on the ship, when he was on his way over to England, but the way they handled the, the, uh, the stuff with Lucy, you know, uh, with her and the vampire 
was better than I would have uh, imagined. I mean, I absolutely loved all of those scenes. Yeah, the one scene that took me out of it was the werewolf rape scene. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that, I, 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 I did very. It was very much a werewolf. I mean, I know what they were going for because then later he's a bat. Yeah. So it's almost like okay, yes, he can turn into a wolf, but here, let's see, this is him, and uh, yes, he can turn into a bat, but it's him. I, I understood it after the fact more than I did during because you know as you're watching it's like wait a second this is a werewolf I, I had the same reaction the first time if you've never seen this movie there are a lot of scenes that are going to jar you yeah. when you first see dracula you're gonna be like what the <laughs> crap true. i love that makeup though it's amazing once you get used to it there's yeah. a there's yeah. a lot of flashback scenes with a young count with a crucifix and a lot of blood you're gonna say what the crap is this and <laughs> You know, and the werewolf rape scene, as as I'm jokingly calling it, is one of those scenes with Lucy that you're just going to be like, this is crazy. And I think that's why the movie was so divisive when it came out. It was just so different from what you expect from the movie Dracula. But as these things have grown on me over time, I've been able to revisit the film and think about it in relation to other Dracula stories. I just have so much appreciation for what this is. Again, it's not like my perfect version, but it's really, really, really good. And for uh-huh. what it is. Wow. Well, um, I'm with you guys. I really like this movie too. I, I saw it, uh, maybe at least twice in the nineties and then maybe, a few years ago when I was in college, but I don't remember it very well, to be honest. However, what I did want to contribute to the conversation is this is one of those rare horror films, even though it's an art house, you know, which makes sense, that actually has uh, some Academy Award love. I mean, it was uh, nominated for four different Academy Awards and won three of them for Best Costume Design, Best Effects, and Sound Effects Editing, um, and Best Makeup. And then the one that was just nominated for but didn't win was Best Art Direction, Set Direction. So, this is very cool. There aren't that many horror flicks that have actually received Academy Awards, especially multiple Academy Awards. Right. Especially movies that um, that are universally recognized as horror. Yes. You know, obviously, Silence of the Lambs won a lot, but you have just as many people saying that's not horror as the, that are saying it is. You know, so we well, yeah, and and it's weird because like IMDb uh, classifies this as fantasy, horror, romance, and so right. You want you wonder how the Academy felt about it, but they were like, well, it's it's uh, Coppola, it's got Gary Oldman in it, and, and it's Anthony interesting because the, for the for the voters because this was the year after Silence of the Lambs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So that, that's interesting. Um, but no, that's you're right. That it doesn't very uh, often happen with uh, with horror films. I know that there were some who, that have won awards. I th- I know that the you know you got to go back to the 30s with the uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, the Frederick March version. I'm pretty sure that won something. I can't remember what. I might have. I don't know if it was Best Actor. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting. I, I mean, something. The Exorcist won two Academy Awards, right? As well right. as best writing for um, screenplay, you know, adapted mm-hmm. screenplay, and then best sound, which makes a lot of sense. Um, yep. It was actually the, in fact, The Exorcist was nominated for tons of things: best picture, best actress, right. best actor, right. uh, director, cinematography. So that one got tons of love, but yeah, this is rare. Right. 
Um, you know, um, as we talk about, one of the awards was for effects. I've talked about the effects a lot. There's an awesome documentary that shows how Roman Coppola created a lot of these effects and how Francis Ford Coppola was just so frustrated because he could not um, communicate to the effects guys what he wanted. He would tell them, and then they would come back with this really modern take on it, and he just like, no, that's not – Correct. And so finally his son was just like, let me try to do it. And he had his son do it, which is awesome. And his son has uh-huh. gone on to become a, a filmmaker in his own right. Um, he's directed some really fun movies like CQ. I just absolutely love, but he also co-wrote uh, some stuff with Wes Anderson. And he did a lot of um, the second unit photography for uh, Wes Anderson and some other filmmakers. Anyway, Roman Coppola is this really fascinating guy. I didn't have time to do all the research I'd hoped to, as I mentioned, um, but I will get this to Jay for the show notes or put it in the notes or the comments uh, on horrormoviepodcast.com because there's some awesome documentaries and bonus material that aren't even on the DVD uh, or Blu-ray releases, that you, but you can find them um, on YouTube. And, you know, as the Coppolas do, they do a lot of behind-the-scenes documentaries. It's one of the things that they're yes. famous for yes. is every movie's like, a member of the family does a behind-the-scenes doc for So there's, like, seven behind-the-scenes docs for every right. one of movies. And I think, didn't, didn't his wife do the Lessons in Darkness? Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. So um, I will find the links to all of those or information on them and leave them in the in the comments because they're Thank they're you. really worth watching. Excellent. Okay. So um are you guys ready to wrap this one up? Do you got more? I don't want to cut you short. Anything else before we move into ratings? Not really. I just want to say, you know, I t- I discussed Dracula Untold as a Sword and Sandals epic. This film is actually epic. Um that is, you know, kind of a representation of what we call an epic but it doesn't have as epic a feel as this movie does. This takes place over centuries. Right. Is a, is a, this amazing romance while just being filled to the brim with gl- uh, blood and gore and, and, and horror and, and torturous emotion. And so I don't, I, I think all of that's really fun about it. All right. Well, um, so let's move into the ratings then. Uh, Wolfman, Josh, what do you rate? Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm going to say this is a 9.5, and I'm going to say it's a buy it. For me, this is in my top five vampire movies of all time. I think if I had extended my top 10 list, this would probably make it into my top 20 horror movies of all time. I just really, really appreciate the artistry and, again, the handmade feeling of this film. Is there a reason why it's not a full-blown 10 for you, Josh? I mean, I think it is all those scenes like the werewolf rape scene and things like that <laughs> that are just not um, my cup of tea. And I can't, right. and, and part of that is not realizing fully, you know, Bram Stoker's vision. And so it kind of annoys me that it's called Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it's not uh-huh. quite his story still. But, you know, and, and it's also not, I think I have to give the 31 version a 10 because of its impact on the world i don't think this film has had that same impact on the world that that film has but i do love it as a film it it, it accomplishes all it needs to it's a movie and it's a good one i get you yeah and see that's where you and i and this isn't this isn't even to put a fine point on it but this is where you and i differ so much because like um i would definitely find this one more entertaining 
than that earlier one, so it would probably get a higher rating for me, but I understand why you do it like that, and I respect your rating system, sir. All right. <laughs> okay, Dr. Shock, what do you rate this one? Um, <clears throat> I'm actually going to go with an 8.5. Uh, like I said, I had an issue with, with the time, and I wasn't as big a fan of, of um, Keanu Reeves. I don't think he was as absolutely <laughs> terrible as some critics have said he was, like top 10 worst performances in a horror movie, you know, things like that. I wouldn't go that far with it, but um, he didn't have me wanting to see Winona Ryder's character end up with him. <laughs> I would have been much happier to see her ride off in the sunset with Dracula, to be honest with you. Um, but other than that, it's 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 a dynamic film. It's It's exciting. It pulls you in, um, and it, it tells a great story, and it is a it is a very effective romance too. Um, I thought that you know the two of them had a great chemistry together, um, and I liked that they had made that change to the story. So uh, yeah, I'd say eight point five, and it's a it's a buy. It's one I think mm-hmm. you'll. I mean, I know I'm going to watch it again. Yes, sir. I'm about in that range too. I think I'm in the eight or nine range, somewhere around where you guys are. So. I back you on it. I can't imagine that we have listeners out there that haven't seen this one yet, right? Because it's pretty recent, 92, you know. It is. It so. is. Yeah, I would think I would think so. I would think they have seen We it. have listeners that were born in 92, though, so. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know, but don't you feel like um, the modern viewers of today at least um, reach back into the 90s? In 2000s, you there's know. only so much time in the day, though, Jay. I mean, you know, there's a lot of movies to watch. Uh, yeah, but, we, but we have we have guy we have listeners born in the 90s who reach back into the 30s too. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm just saying, if you're reaching all the way back to the 30s, you might not have time to see everything in the 90s. Uh, no, that's true. There's tons of stuff out there. Everybody's got those movies on their, uh, you know, that that uh, that they've not seen those classics that the whole world seems to have seen, uh, but mm-hmm. you have not. Everybody's got those movies. That's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks. So that was the Dracula versus, and we would love to hear your thoughts in the comments for episode 85 here. And at this point, it's pretty late for Dr. Shock. I think he's going to be taken off. Is that correct? Doc? Yeah. And, and unfortunately I did not get to see the movie you're going to be discussing. So no problem. Well, I really hope you do and you can let us know what you think. But before you go, Dr. Shock, Tell the listeners where they can catch up with more of your work on the internet. Absolutely. You can come over to DVDinfatuation.com. Uh, still got the movie reviews going over there. Um, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. I do have a Facebook page as well, and the sh- you can see the uh, link for that in the show notes. And also on uh, the Land of the Creeps podcast with Greg Amortis and um, Jesse Robbins. Um, and, uh, we have been, we're in the midst of doing our, uh, 1920s retrospective, looking back on the films of the 1920s, which we do every other week, uh, mixing in with reviews of newer movies as well. Uh, so you could check us out there. It's landofthecreeps.blogspot.com. Quick question, Dr. Shuck. Um, I noticed you didn't mention Haddonfield Hatchet. Where, where's that guy been? Oh, Haddonfield Hatchet. No, you know what? And he is still... Technically part of the show. He has not been on for quite a while. He is in school. 
and that's taking up a lot of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know what? I, I did not mean to um, to diss him. No, uh, I know. he is just I know. he has uh, he's been away for months though. It's been months since he has been has has been on the show uh, because he's just so uh, embroiled in his studies and in school. And he just hasn't had the time to watch the movies or really do anything else. But no, he is still uh, officially, yes, part of the show. And we do hope to have him back on uh, soon. That's good. Yeah, I like that guy. Okay. All right. Well, we hope you have a good night, Dr. Shock. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a good night. Take care. Take See you, care. buddy. Bye-bye. All right. And at this point in episode 85, Jay the Dead's going to show up and come to work finally. <laughs> We're going to move into our feature review of The Invitation. God, this thing is so official. Maybe they're overcompensating. It's kind of hard to call everybody up out of the blue after two years. I'm so glad you're here. We've got a lot to talk about. So much to celebrate tonight. Each and every one of us is on a journey, and we feel that it's important to be on that journey with the people you love. Everybody, this is my friend Pruitt. Okay, The Invitation is a new film that's slated to release in theaters on Friday, April 8th, 2016. It's also, uh, supposedly, it's going to be available on VOD as well. Josh, that's a trend that I did not think was very popular in Hollywood where they're doing a VOD release at the same time they're doing a theater release. Um, Have you heard anything on this? I know your finger's on the pulse of the industry. I mean, it's not a new idea. It's the day and date release that Steven Soderbergh came up with uh, back with Bubble, I believe, was the first day and date release film. Yes, um, Soderbergh was walking down the street in New Orleans and he saw a copy of, I, I don't think it was like Ocean's 12 for sale on the street the day before the movie premiered. And he thought, if this guy is getting to make profit off of my movie, I should be making profit off my movie. So his <laughs> idea was to release it digitally, which at that time was still television. I believe it was HD net was how they were releasing it DVD and theatrically all on the same day. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately they, and they still do this. They, they have never really tested these products on a studio level with big movies. They always test them with a little film like bubble, which probably a lot of people weren't going to see anyway. Or when uh, they did this, you know, uh, you can get the theatrical experience in your home they did it with this dumb uh, Tim Allen, uh, you know, action comedy that probably a lot of people weren't going to watch anyway. And so they haven't really tested it on like a big movie. Like if you did that with Star Wars, you would change the model forever, but they haven't done that yet. And so over time, this the meaning of day and day releases has uh, evolved. But basically, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a thing that independent films have utilized and have been teaching the industry how effective they can be. Um, and The Invitation is an independent film. It's being released by Draft House Films, which is, for my money, one of the great um, distribution companies out there today. Mm-hmm. They are owned by, you know, the people who do Draft House Cinemas, um, Tim, uh, Alamo. I can't remember what his last name is, but he goes by Tim Alamo occasionally. Right, right. Um, but basically, you know, they, they they make these they have these excellent 
cinemas in, in Texas and now spreading to other places. And they have these awesome film releases. We talked about Roar, the one with the people who yes. lived with the lions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they just spent a lot of time releasing films that were um, big international films, but they were handling, they would handle the U S release of the film. Okay. I don't know if that's the case here. This seems to be an American movie, but right. uh, yeah, the, the way they're releasing it, sorry, I know this is very long winded, but Hey, it's a little lesson about modern movie making. I love it. Um, this is, <laughs> this is becoming more and more popular. And so what you'll see is, yeah, a movie might be um, in theaters and on VOD and on DVD all within a week or, or so of each other, sometimes on the same day. And I like that because you know, I saw the green room, um, which is still hasn't come out yet, but I saw it at Sundance and I immediately wanted to buy the Blu-ray. And I feel like if it follows, for instance, if I, I, I loved my theatrical experience, I think if that had been available on Blu-ray that day, I would have gone straight from the theater to the store and bought the Blu-ray. Yes. And so yes. I like that. And, and some people don't want to go to the theater. Some people would rather watch a movie on their phone. Those people are wrong. But right. <laughs> they should have that option. And and if you are a filmmaker, you should want to give as many people the option to buy your movie as possible, I would think. Yeah, see, I, I, I love that. And I agree with everything you just said. I, I only bring it up just because um, just the other day, I mean, just a couple of days ago as we record this, there was a big article released on one of the big sites. It was like Variety or something that said, you know, Hollywood does not like, you know, day and date releases it i don't know the exact title anyway I, mean, I, I believe it because they're trying to encourage a theatrical experience i think what they will find though is that the audience this is the other thing they're not making movies other than these big temple movies and so people are only going to the theater to see those movies right they're they're part of the problem you know they're not making adult films so it's only really the indie art house theaters now that are showing what I would consider to be, and I don't mean this in a, an X-rated way, but adult films, adult movies made for adults. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Uh, they just they don't do that at the cinema anymore. It's very rare because they have too many tentpole movies. They've got too many superhero movies and movies based on young adult novels uh, that they can't fit in just a regular drama. And so I think this is a great model for a film like this that is this tense indie thriller that probably wouldn't have a huge audience at the box office. This is a way for a lot more people to see this movie. Yeah. And I'm just putting it out there just for the record. Just want to state, I love it when that happens, when the, the VOD is available on the same day as the theatrical release. And I, I, you know, I don't want to see the end of theaters and I know people worry about that. Of course I want theaters to live forever, but I also I want my cake and I want to eat it too. I also would love to have the VOD availability on the same date. I think that's phenomenal. So anyway, all of that to say, <laughs> suffice it to say, this is a new film that is has yet to be released. And so we're not going to go, we're not going to reveal spoilers or ruin anything for you guys listening to this review. And I want to be very careful about spoilers. I know you always are, but mm -hmm. for me, um, like when we talked about The Witch, it's not a plot heavy film. And so to even give away small plot details to me seems to spoil a lot of, you know, yeah. the, dr the drive of the film. Well, you'll, and you'll be, so you'll be pleased because I think we're on the same page on this about okay. protecting people's experiences. So this is, um, you know, another little side note. Sorry about all the, the, 
<laughs> preface all this prelude into the review, but, um, you know, from a film criticism perspective, it's a very interesting challenge. I think about this stuff a lot, Josh. People might not suspect that from <laughs> the, the, the just crazy-minded reviews that come out of me and on these podcasts. But honestly, I think about this challenge. It's like a film like this or like 10 Cloverfield Lane, for example. Mm-hmm. Like it's so difficult to review those and actually preserve the experience enough and still give, you know, a substantial kind of review. So, but we're going to do our best here. So first and foremost, since this is horror movie podcast, I feel compelled to give you our sub genre breakdown. And I actually bet that uh, Wolfman Josh will agree with me on this and tell me if you don't, but here, here's how I do it. I think this is a drama first, and I'd say 80% drama, thriller second, about 15% thriller, and horror third, 5% horror. What do you think? I like that. I would say a paranoid drama first, maybe, because I, even mm. though it, there's a lot of drama, it has a sense of tension and paranoia throughout. It does. I like that. Okay. See, uh, you improved on what I said. And if we look at uh, Jay of the Dead's TNA or Tone and Assignment of Horror from <laughs> episode 81, <laughs> um, uh, I think, yes, this does have themes of, uh, you know, mankind versus death, right? I, I also think the tone establishes that we have a potential victim situation here. So it is, in fact, a horror film technically. But to me, Josh, this is more close. It's, it's closer to like the fringe thriller range. And so I, I'd give this a primal horror assignment when it comes down to it. But if we're just being frank, straightforward, I think we're mainly dealing with a thriller here. Um, do you feel good about that or not? I mean, I, mean I, I don't disagree with you, but I think people who considered like yourself, maybe the sacrament, a horror movie, I think this is not. Um, far off that type of experience. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, so uh, The Invitation was directed by Karen uh, Kusama, and she directed Girl Fight, Eon Flux, and Jennifer's Body. And it was written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. Now, this is um, an apparent writing team, and they did write some sketchy screenplays in their past. So, I'm not going to mention those here, Josh, because I'm actually... <laughs> you on Flux, though. <laughs> <laughs> I did mention that. But uh, I, I'm here to champion this film, uh, The Invitation. So, uh, don't worry about their other stuff. This what is... I would say is Girl Fight is a fantastic movie, and I would call this uh, the director's return to form of the other mm-hmm. Mentioned so. okay, yeah, and that's Michelle Rodriguez, right? Yeah, I, I, so good. It was her first role, or see, at least the first thing I saw. Right? I never actually saw that, and I've been curious about it. So now but I gotta DVD, get you can borrow it. Anytime. Oh, sweet, I gotta get to that then. But yeah, <laughs> so but as far as the writers go, this is the best thing I've seen from them. Now, the invitation stars Logan Marshall Green, and I want to talk more about him in a second. But he was in Prometheus, and then you got Tammy Blanchard. She appeared in Into the Woods, and then uh, I believe is his name pronounced Michael Hoosman. I probably said it wrong, but he's from Game of Thrones. So yeah, you'll recognize the cast, and it all has also has like John Carroll Lynch in it. And um, you even yeah. if you don't know his name, he's been in tons of stuff like Shutter Island and stuff like that. Zodiac. And Zodiac, of course. Yes. <laughs> so um, here's a brief premise. 
Josh, and here's what I'm going to do. I, I've adjusted. I didn't like the IMDb version, and I didn't love the press version, but I kind of blended in with something I think that you and I will both feel good about. Um, so while attending a dinner party at his formal, a former home, <laughs> a man thinks his ex-wife and her new husband have extended this invitation to their guests with a hidden agenda. How's that? Yeah. That was good mixing. <laughs> real, real careful there. Real careful, like, um, and and at this point, so I want to kick it over to you here in a second because I want to get your initial thoughts. I want to give you the first word. This was all set up and preface here, but I got to say something before we get into this. For those listeners out there who were fans of the weekly horror movie podcast and even Horror Metropolis, you'll remember our co-host on there, Craig. Terror Tovey. Well, in the lead role of this film, this Logan Marshall Green guy, he is a dead ringer. And Josh, I'm talking like 98% identical twin to Terror Tovey. What? Uh, particularly at the time that Craig used to be on those podcasts because he had the beard and the long hair. He looked exactly like it. And here's the thing. I've known it's it's nuts. I've known Craig for years, everybody out there. And Terror Toby, I saw him weekly because we were in a band together. And I actually paused this movie and looked at him closely and checked IMDB to make sure that it wasn't actually Terror Toby in the role because (laughs) he's down in LA, Josh, and he's trying to break into the business. And I thought it might actually be him. So it's uncanny. And this is the most remarkable doppelganger situation that I've ever encountered without it actually being an identical twin. The funny thing about that to me is that I thought this was James LaGrosse for half the movie. I was like, (laughs) and maybe it was just because we just barely watched Phantasm, but he looks a lot like James LaGrosse in this movie to me. And Hmm. not, but like, it was clear that it's not because he's so much younger. Mm -hmm. I'm like, is this some weird time travel James LaGrosse situation. Like I, I swear like half the movie I would, I was just thinking I'm watching James LaGrosse. So, yeah. So we're, but, and we're both talking about the character will, right? I mean, the lead guy, uh, Logan Marshall green. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's amazing. That's really funny. We both had this weird experience with this actor, but so does, so here's the question. Does Tara Tovey look like James LaGrosse? <laughs> I mean, I don't think so, but I, maybe you would. It's, this is hilarious. Anyway, so all of that out of the way. Um, Wolfman Josh, what did you think of The Invitation? I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I like the tone that it sets. It's it's a great, in the sense that it, it's constantly unraveling, which I like, mm-hmm. like it, and and unfurling in terms of the plot. Like I like I like how it is a slow burn. So I think people need to be aware of that. Um, but if you're not concerned with it, probably nobody else will be. <laughs> um, <laughs> for me, that that's a really fun way to experience a movie. And the more cold you can go in, I would say the better. I like that experience of just always being surprised. And there are little things here. It's not a big, um, there are not huge plot twists. You know I mean? They're right. As the film is revealed, as the plot is revealed, it all makes sense. And it's kind of what you would expect to some degree, but it's just done so well. Uh, and the cast is so good. 
Yes. And there are there are legitimate twists um in the movie, but a lot of it it's just about uh the vibe <laughs> that the uh that the director and writers and actors create together and it's really creepy. It, it, it's not I hope, I hope this isn't a bad comparison because I don't want to set any false expectations, but in some ways it reminded me of um, House of the Devil in the way that the um, the drama kind of unfolds so slowly, but it's continually creepy. It's not that much of a horror movie, mm-hmm. um, but that that's the type of film it felt like to me. What's What's another one? Um, You're next again. It's not that um, overt as that film, but it had a similar uh, unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. I I know what you're saying and it does. And and what's weird, what's truly weird about it is um, all the creepiness, the things that make you feel uneasy about the film are fairly subtle. I mean, they're, they're pretty, tame for the most part i mean most things are just um you know alone by themselves or on paper they don't really creep you out that much but the thing is they have this collective power and as the film unfolds it it starts working on you and it's done so realistically you can really imagine yourself in the situation like (laughs) it feels like the kind of thing that would happen to me like i feel like i would be at this dinner party and then all of a sudden I'd be like, no, wait, what's, what's going on? <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. I know. And, and that, that is, that's one of the, the true strengths of this film is honestly, this is one of those situations that I love because it seems absolutely real to me. It seems like something that could actually happen. And that terrifies me. But Josh, this is established really well. I mean, from the opening scene, I think this film sets this uneasy tone of dread. I mean, there there's something that happens right there in the opening that really startles me. And that's a common convention for a, a film of this nature where you have um, some, some sort of like disturbing incident up front. Like in the old 80s slashers, um, yeah. if they weren't going to get around to the killer for a little while, they would have a killing right up front. And um, yeah, it's just to let you know this is going to get dark, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is to tell you this is what kind of um, movie we're talking about. And uh, I referenced earlier Ten Cloverfield Lane, which I really loved. Um, that film, Ten Cloverfield Lane, when its title card comes up and the music starts, it's really bold about announcing its arrival and its presence. It's like I'm a film. Here I am. And, and this film does that too. It has that same confidence. And when the intro music starts there, like at the, the title track and all this stuff after the intro happens, um, it's excellent. And I have to compliment the soundtrack on this right up front. I mean, later in the film, it's really subtle, but you actually hear in the um, like the uh, rhythm section or the <laughs> there, there's the sound, I'm certain, that it's a hacksaw. Somebody is sawing. And, and and you can hear that on the soundtrack. And I'm like, man, that is powerful. So that's very yeah. effective to me. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite thing about this film is the fact that it has heart to it. I mean, the story itself has a pulse and, and it yeah. invests me in it. It's got a soul. I'm trying to explain it. I don't want to go into the specifics of the details, 
I'll, I'll just say this, Josh, and I think this is safe to say without sharing too much. This couple that's divorced, I mean, you know, it's the guy who's coming to the party and then the girl who is at the party is his ex-wife, right? Um, they shared a tragedy together and it was probably the cause of their relationship's dem- demise. And so we learn about this throughout the course of the night and this is actually very moving and touching. And I have to say, this this film's got to go on record for me, Josh. This may be the first horror movie ever that actually made me tear up. Because, like, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so weird to say that out loud. But, like, um, there are flashback memories to happier times. And then a lot of these are bittersweet. But, man, those were working on me. How, how did that stuff affect you? Yeah, I mean, the movie has real emotional angst, and that's effective in horror, I think. Um, we sometimes just gloss over the importance of character and and these things in, in a horror movie. And, and, you know, I know that when we were covering the, uh, the 80s slashers, when we were doing Friday the 13th, it was really easy to say, well, let's get to the kills because that's what these movies are about. But, <laughs> you know, the truth is, is that when you make the audience care about the characters, you care so much more about what happens to them. Yes. I mean, it, it really is exponential. You, you, if you are invested in who they are as people, you really don't want them to die later, you know? (laughs) And so that, um, you know, I think that makes it extremely effective. And I wish we would see more of this kind of stuff in horror movies. Uh, I totally agree. And here we have like with this lead character, he he's one of my favorite protagonists, Um, maybe of all time. Like if I did a top like 30 protagonists, I bet he would be in it, honestly. And it's not just because of the Terror Toby connection, because I like terror and everything. <laughs> but, you know, I don't like him that much. I'm just saying. No, I'm kidding. But, um, you know, this is another one of those situations where horror happens to those who deserve it least. And I, this guy, this character, I just really genuinely related to him. And I think as audience members, I think this film is constructed in such a way that we are supposed to, you know, kind of be in his head and and, and get him. Because, like, his sentiments at every moment, I, I just loved him. And I was right where he was. At every, at every point in this film, I'm like, yeah, buddy, I'm on the same page. I feel the same way you do. Like, I mean, yeah. he's tough, he's admirable, but he's also sympathetic. And I just loved him. Yeah, and I, I liked him too. And um, one thing we haven't really talked about are the production values. Um, you can tell that it's a low-budget movie and an indie film, but it doesn't bother me in any way. At the start, I some of the editing I found a little jarring. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it could have been the editing. It could have been the performances. But just as the party is getting underway, there were a few moments where I was like, yeah, uh, like I was kind of like, that's not the best. But it really <laughs> um, got me after a while. And it's actually, you know, I really like the way it's shot. I really like the lighting is kind of, um, it's just perfect yeah. for, the, for the tone. And, and it's really well edited as the, and directed as the film goes on. So I, I really uh, appreciated the technical aspects of the movie as well. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, my only criticisms, I think most of those really like centered around those things. In fact, my biggest gripe about this film is, is the audio sometimes like the sound, um, the sound design, I guess is what you would call it. Like sometimes there would be muffled sound or where the audio would kind of 
fall out or be like hugely muffled. And I yeah. found that very distracting. It broke the spell for me. It took me out of the film. Now I do want to say for the filmmaker on, on her behalf, like I'm, I'm fairly certain that she was trying to actually use it as a storytelling device. Right. But it, it just, it really like, oh, it, it bugged me bad. And, and it, it only did it a few times. It's not like all the way through the film or anything. The other thing that's a little distracting in this, and I know every horror film, modern horror film has to do this, but they do the the planting, the, you know, the cell phones don't get very good reception here. Like they do that over and over. Lots of that here. Yeah. And it's actually not very credible in the first place because it's set in like Hollywood Hills in this ritzy neighborhood where I'm certain that the people there would not tolerate not having cell phone service. Actually, it's really bad. It is kind of bad up there. Like I was just in Beverly Hills last week (laughs) filming some, some video, like there's no internet reception at all. Like (laughs) really? Yeah. On my, like on my iPhone, there was, I could not get an internet signal. I was, I had literally had no service um, in one of the houses that I went in and wow. I had to like, so- I had to log into their internet to even get any kind of signal that, that actually well, happens up there. Just, well, be- I, I redact that then. <laughs> I mean, I stand corrected because I will say they, they still planted the cell phone thing too much, but I redact the other thing about it not being credible. So, yeah, so I think sorry. All those rich people have to have like I don't know what they call them. There's a word for it, but they have to have like these booster repeater things in their houses, but anyway. like satellite phones or something. Um, but and, and then my my only other um, criticism, and and these were really the only three things, is when this when this thing does open up for us and it breaks open, um, I, I get extremely disoriented with it and I hate losing my bearings in a film like that and I think it was probably supposed to do that to us a little bit but I I feel like as far as like this film's ability to be effective to me as a viewer I think that if I were able to kind of (laughs) uh, I guess bask in the horrifying realization of what was actually happening rather than being distracted by trying to figure out what was happening, you know? So, so thinking about like, what's, what the reality is rather than, okay, what's the reality, you know, that, that took away a little bit from the actual experience for me, but I don't know how you felt about that. I mean, I think that's part of the fun of the movie for me, but I, I can understand why it would be off putting. I just think that it, it feels like one of the major intentions of the film is to kind of throw you off. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm, what can you believe and and not? I'm with you. I'm with you. But like overall, I just want to say in this, you know, not a spoiler at all. I'm very pleased with the ending. I feel like it's it's haunting. But um, I, I love how this film like toys with you. I mean, it it you know takes your they lead you around by the nose a lot with your expectations, and I love that. I love how it's socially uncomfortable. So not only is it creepy, but it's also like there are all these social things that are uncomfortable. And um, it's pretty raw sometimes, too. So, Josh, I just got to say, I, I, mean, <laughs> I loved this movie and I'm a huge fan of it. So um, you and I had talked earlier and I think you said by text that this is definitely something you would encourage people to see in theaters. Is that 
Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would give this movie an eight, but I, I think people should see it in theaters and, um, and that's what I'd consider buying. I don't, I don't know right now. I, I, I need to think about it a little bit more. I just saw, you know, just recently, like yesterday. And so I have to ponder on it a bit more, but it's definitely a see it in the theater for me or VOD, if that's how you see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, for me, this is a nine out of 10, like a straight up nine. I say definitely see it in the theater because I think you're going to have a great experience with this. Um, and I know what you mean by like not being sure about saying buy it because it's like, okay, how many times are you going to watch this film? But for yeah. me, this would, this would be one of those special films that I would have where I'd be like, hey, somebody comes over to my house, you know, for like I'd give them an invitation for a dinner party. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I'd show them this movie. No, but I would be like, hey, have you seen the invitation? You know? Because it'd be this special little ace in the hole kind of thing where I want to show it to somebody you who know, hadn't seen point. it. That's a good point. It's a pass along kind of movie for sure. Mm-hmm. And and I also just want to say, you know, we uh, we often say to watch this movie in the theaters to support good cinema. I would also say to support good cinema distribu- distributors because I can't overstate um, how great a job Draft House Films does in getting great international films to American audiences. Um, you know, my favorite documentary of last year, the look of silence is one that they're distributing in the United States. Um, they, they do, they do really fun, like rock and roll kind of movies. I know if you go to the website right now, you can get a free download of a band called death, which is a really fun documentary. Um, but you know, I, the first film I think they ever released was called four lions. So that was, just an awesome movie. The act of killing, as you know, is a movie that I, I really enjoy. And, and I recently sponsored a screening of one of their films called Raiders, um, which is the story of the greatest fan film ever made. They, uh, we screened their film with the Provo film society. Um, the director is, is from here. So, um, that was kind of our interest in it, but it's a really fun movie and they, they just put out great stuff. Like, you know, if I, if I was releasing like, you know, one of the documentary projects that I'm working on right now, this is like the exact distributor I'd want for Like, like if I could have picked clean flicks distributor, this is who I would have wished would have distributed clean flicks. Yeah. They do awesome, awesome stuff. So just, uh, I would say check out their movies and support what they're doing. Nice. Yeah. Well, I back you on that. And I got w- one more thing to say about the invitation. Um, you know, I love looking at the themes of films, and I forgot to mention this earlier, so I'm sorry about that. But this has one of my favorite uh, themes, which is one of the major themes of The Village. Now, this is nothing like The Village, by the way, but um, this is a recurring theme in horror, and that is, you know, what happens or <laughs> the, the folly of people who try to run or hide from sorrow or grief. Like, if you're trying to avoid sorrow in your life or, or grief and escape it, you know, um, hor- horrible things will happen to you. And then, and I love that as a theme. I think that's <laughs> so good. So anyway, um, yeah, I give this a nine out of 10. Like I said, said, see it in the theater on April 8th and buy it. And Josh said, it's an eight out of 10. He says, see it in the theater. And it sounds like you're saying this is a strong rental, Josh, and a possible buy. Yeah. You know what? I, 
you kind of talked me into it. I think it is, like I said, I think it is kind of a pass along film. It's one that you'd be like, you got to check this one out and, and hand it to your friend and don't tell them anything about it. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I can get behind to buy it for this. Okay. And I would love for, I know this episode is going to come out before that, but I would love for the listeners to um, do us a favor and check out this film. And once you do, please leave us some comments and let us know what you thought about it. Just tell us if we let you down or not. I'm pretty sure, Josh, we came through on this one. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, again, understand, you know, with your expectations, what type of film this is, and you will not be disappointed in that way. Yeah. Because let's remember, I said 80% drama, and ultimately this thing is a thriller. So, I mean, of the movies I've seen this year, this is probably my number two favorite horror movie of the year. I know everyone gave me a hard time for not liking The Witch enough, but that is probably my favorite <laughs> horror movie I've seen this year. Um, and this is probably number, number two. I think, um, you know, when Green Room comes out, pretty soon maybe we can argue whether or not that is a horror movie uh that might beat out those other two at that point if if we are in considering that a horror movie but right now yeah this is my number two horror movie of the year well i'm with you i would say that as well um for sure and i am very comfortable with saying that and from the way that you and william rowan jr reviewed and described green room I'm pretty certain that's going to be a horror movie in my book. So I can't wait to see that. I'm very excited. But uh, Josh, so I, I back you on that. And at some point, I, I've brought it up a couple times tonight. We've got to talk about 10 Cloverfield Lane. Have you seen that yet? I have not. No, there was some interest in hearing the sci-fi podcast guys review it. Um, but I just have not had a chance to. So is it a horror movie? Yes. Okay. Yes. I've also been told by Shannon that it's a sci-fi movie. So we'll have to see. Maybe we can do some kind of crossover there. That would be fun. I know that Matt was talking about doing a Cloverfield episode where they would cover both movies. Well, okay. So first of all, try to keep yourself as clean and unspotted from 10 Cloverfield Lane as you can. Like try to be as blank slate as possible. Yeah, I am trying to not know anything about it. I almost asked somebody a big question, but I said not to. Right. Yeah, I mean, don't even, I mean, don't make too many assumptions. I mean, I would just try to go in with a blank slate and you'll enjoy it a lot. But I mean, you know, it's all I'll say, and this won't spoil anything for you, is, is that it's a horror movie in the same way or to the same extent that The Invitation is a horror movie. So I'll say that. Okay. All right. So anyways, yeah, let's look forward to that too because I've been trying to get the MPW guys over there to see 10 Cloverfield Lane so we could do a spoiler review because I could barely even talk about it on the podcast because I was just trying to protect it so much, you know, people's experience. But we're going to have a spoiler-filled review at some point, it sounds like, either on this show or maybe crossover. (laughs) So we will get to that, everybody. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps up episode 85 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank everyone for listening. And Josh, if I'm not mistaken, our episode that's coming out in two weeks, our next episode is episode 86. And that is the horror comedy listener requested theme, the oxymoronic subgenre. Are you guys kidding me with this? I, I love that that's going to happen. I I, I want to make sure that you have time to do your homework for this one. <laughs> 
How many of these do we got to watch? I don't want you to show up and say you didn't have a chance to watch any horror comedies. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I might might be a slacker again. Well, how many do we got to watch? So uh, we've got a list from our listeners, and I was just gonna t- I was gonna tally up all of the entries because we had a lot of recommendations, and then present them to you and Dave like what maybe like the top five movies were that the listeners recommended. And then I say we picked like two or three of those. Okay. Um, there, a lot of them came up over and over again. Like there's a clear top four that I can think of just off the top of my head um, as we as we uh, look back at those. But um, I, you know, I think it'll be a fun discussion of horror comedy as a conceit, as a concept, and then we'll have some great reviews, um, hopefully of a couple of classics, and then maybe a brand new film as well. So well, I just want to say damn you people and i hope that you all get an invitation no, i'm just kidding <laughs> all right fine horror comedy next episode we'll do it josh so joshua yes sir tell us where we can find more of your work on the internet okay uh you can go to moviestreamcast.com where i'm reviewing movies that are new that are currently streaming online as well as a lot of television and any streaming content, really. You can also go to the sci-fi podcast.com where I produce uh, some of those episodes and I appear on there semi-frequently, probably every third episode I'm on that show. And um, Jay and Dave were just on that doing the second half of our Phantasm coverage. If you missed that, make sure you check that out. Jay has also been on there a few times talking about the Alien franchise. So there's some good there's some good content over there. We did a Halloween episode that I think horror fans would enjoy uh, talking about horror sci-fi movies. So um, if you like science fiction, definitely give that a try. Other than that, you can find me on Twitter at Icarus Arts. That's the name of my production company. And uh, yeah, I'd love to talk with you all on the message board. So head over to home. Nope, not home. Head over to horrormoviepodcast.com and we've got some great conversations going with our awesome listeners uh, in the comments. And I just want to say, do you know how um, you know our little tagline for this show is dead serious about horror movies? Well, the listeners have finally, there has kind of submerged, or what's the word then? When, when submarines come up out of the water, what's that called? Uh, the opposite of submerge. Yeah. Resurfaced maybe yeah. okay well yeah it surfaced the, the uh, tagline for movie podcast weekly which um they they have decided is family friendly but still offensive <laughs> 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 so so and josh to your credit i guess I gotta give you props here publicly you've been telling me this for years <laughs> and and um and i'm i'm really starting to understand it so if you guys want to hear a bunch of, um, well, jackasses basically talk about new movies that are in theaters, then moviepodcastweekly.com might be for you. We love your comments, so please get involved in the horror movie podcast community and just keep them coming. You can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode, or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. And find all of our past episodes for this show, as well as our back archives for the weekly horror movie podcast, which features Terror Toby, as well as Horror Metropolis also has some Terror Toby at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. 
You can subscribe free in iTunes. And if you would leave us a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate that. You can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. And I want to take time to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. I'll have that linked in the show notes. And the name of the song of Fred's (laughs) that our theme is from is called Wilderness. Just in case you wanted to know that. And I think that's it for episode 85 here. So we thank you for listening and join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.